Father, we do ask you in this moment to aid us to have hearts of humility, to have hearts of faith, to have hearts as your children who listen to your word with obedience, with a response of praise to who you are and your majesty and your glory. And even as we consider this morning your holiness displayed in executing justice on the earth and ultimately in establishing your kingdom and salvation on this earth at the return of your Son. Help us, Lord, again to listen with attentive ears and to long for the great day when we will worship Christ with renewed and resurrected bodies, when we will be with Him forever, when we will be with You and enjoy the communion that we sung about this morning uh, with never-ending and only increasing intensity and joy and purity. Thank You for Your great work of redemption. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 as we march through this great gospel. We find ourselves this morning in verses 29 through 31. And as you've gathered, this is a glorious section that speaks of the return of Jesus Christ to earth. The return of Jesus Christ to earth. Now the great hope of every Christian is, or at least it should be, at the forefront of our minds, the return of Christ to establish His kingdom on earth. We wait with bated breath, as it were. We wait with anticipation and we wait in hope of this great and glorious event, this great and glorious reality. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, he points us to this time. He says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. He'll sit on His glorious throne. We await that day. It's a day that the prophets anticipated throughout the history of the nation of Israel. Listen to only a few samplings. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness. In Jeremiah 33, 15, we read this. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In Isaiah 61, 11, the prophet tells us this. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all of the nations. Indeed, any who love Christ, how could we not wait for this day with hope, with joy, with anticipation? A time when in a unique way we see the glory of Christ manifested on the earth. The earth filled with His praise, filled with righteousness. Indeed, the world that we live in is anything but that. And as wickedness increases and as ungodliness and unrighteousness increases, our hope and our longing for this day increases as well. Imagine, think if you will for a moment, of the whole earth filled with justice, righteousness, the praise of the one true King of kings and the Lord of lords. We should imagine that day. We should think of it. We should think of it often. And I would encourage us to do so. And Scripture points us to that day. God is always 
putting our attention on this great day, this great day that is coming, we have hope that ultimately justice will be served on this earth and God will be glorified in the Son. It's a time that is coming and it is a time that will be glorious. However, before he establishes that kingdom, or indeed in the very establishing of that kingdom, there is first a time of judgment against all the rebellious on earth. It is a time of judgment before he gathers in his saints who are on the earth to himself. And it is a moment that links us look forward to the return of Christ, which Jesus talks about this morning in verses 29 through 31 of Matthew 24. So I'm going to read the passage, three verses, and then we'll look at it more closely and we'll consider three characteristics of the Lord's return in power and glory and for judgment and salvation. Read with me out of Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Look back up at verse 29. Look back up at verse 29, and let me begin just by making a brief comment about the timing of the second coming, the timing of the second coming. He says there at the beginning of verse 29, and immediately after the tribulation of those days. What are those days that he's referring to? He's just mentioned those days. If you went back to verse 19, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Referred to those days in verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. What days is he talking about? Well, in the big picture, he's talking about all of the days beginning in verse 4 down through verse 28. All of the final week of Daniel, the time of the tribulation, the time of a unique period of God's wrath as it's poured out on this earth, and of course, a time of great salvation, but primarily a time of great wrath that the Lord pours out on the earth. This coming then will be the event that brings that suffering, this reign of the Antichrist, this full expression of wickedness that God allows to take place on the earth. This coming of Christ will bring it to an end. He says, immediately after those days. The term immediately has the idea of suddenly or quickly or at once. It is not reasonable then to suggest that this is referring to at the end of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. We've hopefully made that clear. It's not at the end of the church age in and of itself. It is specifically a return that Jesus is identifying will happen and will end the terrible tribulation and the suffering of those days that He's been laying before us throughout Matthew chapter 24. Now, while a precise day is not given, a narrow time, period of time, is three and a half years after the revelation of the man of lawlessness, after the revelation of the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place that he referred to in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. And it is at the end of that time that Jesus reveals to us here that he will return for judgment upon the rebellious world. So let's notice first then, and the first point, it's a time of judgment. It's a time of judgment. Now the first appearing of the Son in flesh was for a time of salvation, or at least for the purpose of salvation. He came that He might accomplish all that the Father had given Him to do, that He might take on flesh, that He would in perfect obedience to the Father as He had through His whole life, go to the cross, offer Himself up as a substitute, bear the iniquity, 
the curse of the law for his people and then rise from the dead having accomplished salvation for them. That was his first purpose for coming and that is in fact what he accomplished. Listen to John 12, just listen. Jesus knowing this suffering that was going to come says this now my soul has become troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose I came to this hour father glorify your name and a voice out of heaven came and said I have both glorified it and I will glorify it that was why he came the first time was for salvation But this second time he returns to earth, it will be for the purpose of judgment. It will be for the purpose of judgment. Not to bear the punishment for the sin of his people, but to execute God's justice and judgment for all who have rejected his work in his first coming. Now Jesus has already anticipated this coming, if you'll remember, in the parables of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, as he explains the parables of the wheat and of the tares, he says this. In verse 36, he left the crowds, went to his house, his disciples asked him to explain it. He says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered and burned up with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He anticipated this time when judgment would precede his coming to establish his kingdom. There removing stumbling blocks, removing the wicked, removing the rebellious from his rightful kingdom. Now let's notice then several aspects about this judgment as it's laid out before us here. The first thing to notice is that it is a judgment that is marked in its severity by the cosmic disturbances and signs that come with it. Look at the second part there, verse 29. When he returns, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Will be shaken. A dramatic scene, a dramatic scene, of course. Cosmic elements of the universe being made to function in a way that indicate suffering, displeasure of God, judgment. Now there is a sense in which God has often used this type of cosmic language to speak of the fury and the supernatural nature of His judgments. Let me give you just a few examples. Speaking of his judgment that would come on the nation of Egypt, particularly on Pharaoh, he says this in the book of Ezekiel 32, verse 7. He says, And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars, and I will cover the sun with the cloud, and the moon will not give its light. There to emphasize the dramatic nature of the judgment that is coming upon that wicked ruler. In Psalm 18, he says this, speaking of his judgments, and the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry and smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode a cherub and flew and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the sky and on and on he goes. In other words, this idea of cosmic disturbance, this idea of great events that will accompany the judgment of God is common language of judgment in the prophets. However, all of these judgments 
that preceded this judgment that is to come merely anticipated. They were a token of this great judgment that He would bring on the earth. That time where He's not localizing this judgment, as it were, on a nation, on a particular people, but where He is bringing judgment on the mass of humanity, all of humankind, if you will. We're going around a lot, but let me just read to you. And just listen, you don't have to turn there to some examples of the way this judgment is described by the prophets and anticipated. He says in Isaiah 2, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, all the hills that are lifted up, every high tower, fortified wall, the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. He says, the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. He says, in that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the caverns and the rocks and the clefts of the cliff before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. Isaiah 13 says this. Just listen. Verse 6. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment and their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be darkened when it arises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud, and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1. Beginning in verse 14, he says this, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind Because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy. For He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And there's more. The point that he's making is that when Christ returns, it will be in a period of great devastation. He will bring with him a period of great destruction upon the pride and the haughtiness and the rejection and the unbelief and the violence and the immorality and the wickedness of man. Listen to a 13th century hymn actually talking about Uh, These events. He says that day, or it goes, that day of wrath, that dreadful day when heaven and earth shall pass away, when power shall be, the sinner's stay. How shall he meet that dreadful day? When shriveling like a parched scroll, the flaming heavens together roll, when louder yet and yet more dread swells the high trump that wakes the dead. Oh, on that day, that wrathful day, when man to judgment wakes from clay, be thou the trembler's, trembling sinner's stay, though heaven and earth shall pass away. 
We don't write hymns about judgment anymore. You have to go back over 700 years for that. But it is a day that he here warns us of, to pay attention to, to know that his return will be with power and glory and to execute justice. Now beyond the language of metaphor that we often see in Scripture, some that we read at first, to describe the the terribleness and the intensity and the severity of God's judgment, there is also the literal events that will accompany the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord. A day that is a unique day. It's used a phrase many different ways in Scripture, but particularly this day of the Lord, which will begin with the execution of His particular judgments during the tribulation period. And it will involve the destruction of natural elements. We've read about some of this in the past. Peter warns us that there is a day ultimately coming when the elements will melt with intense heat. Throughout Revelation, we're told of great earthquakes that will devastate large portions of the earth, water being turned to blood, the sun being turned to darkness, and so forth. So the words of Jesus here then, while using prophetic language of judgment, is also describing actual supernatural events that will attend His return. And we should not be surprised. God who spoke all things into existence, God who sustains all things by the word of His power, God who by His providence causes everything to function with such consistency and stability can at the same time and by that same power disrupt it all and change it all in the twinkling of an eye in a moment. And in fact, that is in part what Jesus lays out for us here. He is power is displayed in how He disrupts the created order. Look at what He says. He says that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its radiance is the idea the sun and the moon essential for light and for life on the earth will not be able to give their light of course if the sun is darkened the moon that reflects that light will also become dark as well he anticipated this in many ways in revelation in chapter Verse 12 of chapter 8, the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. The fifth trumpet as well in verse 2 of chapter 9, he opened the bottomless pit. And smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And he says other things as well. Those anticipate this great time when the Lord returns where the sun here is identified as being completely darkened and the moon as well. He says he will also cause celestial bodies to crash to the earth. The stars will fall from heaven. Now, in fact, we understand that actual stars are many times the size of the earth. Suns of distant galaxies. He's not talking about galaxies crashing down to the earth or massive stars crashing down to the earth. That's not likely what he means since that would destroy the earth and disintegrate it, which is not what happens here. He's coming to sit on his glorious throne, as we read earlier. But it does mean that something like large comets or meteors or some kind of heavenly bodies will be made to crash into the earth. You can imagine the noise and the destruction and the sounds that would come with these cosmic events causing massive damage and death and disruption to communications and all of those things that men rely on and bringing fear. He says thirdly that God will cause cosmic shaking and disruption. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Some want to take this as angelic powers, but better here again referring to visible celestial bodies and things that we observe in the sky. The term shake has the idea of a violent movement back and forth. And it may be that there is some radical and violent movement of the heavenly bodies. It could also refer to the way that the heavens look from the earth that's shaking and moving because of the devastation that he's bringing bringing on it. 
In either case, these are dramatic displays of the power of Christ as He returns to earth. So it's marked first by celestial devastation. But notice next in verse 30, and this more significantly, it's a judgment marked by the personal appearance of Christ. The personal appearance of the glorified Christ. Look what he says in verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. It says later, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. Now this statement has garnered a great amount of discussion. And the basic question is this regarding the sign. Is it a sign that is pointing to Christ in His return? Or is the sign speaking of Christ Himself in His return? What does He mean? Well, some of the early church fathers understood it as a sign of the cross that would precede Christ's coming. In many ways, like the supposed cross that Emperor Constantine saw in the sky that before he was led to victory and which led ultimately to the Christianization of the Roman Empire. And they thought, well, that must be the sign that would precede the coming of Christ. Some argue that it's a standard or some kind of ensign of Christ, although not sure exactly what that is. Some say that it's the consummation of Christ's kingdom and His receiving the kingdom from the Father as was anticipated in Daniel chapter 7 when He went and presented Himself, the Son of Man, to the Ancient of Days and received a kingdom. Some would see it as that moment taking place. Some would see it as maybe it's all the cosmic disturbances and the first sight, the first glimpse of His shining glory as He returns. However, the most common understanding, and I think is probably the best understanding, is this. That the sign, the sign of the Son of Man, is Him Himself, Christ Himself, returning in power and glory. It is His very presence upon His return that bears the greatest witness to the promise of His coming and of His return. This is suggested by the end of verse 30. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. In other words, it is Christ. It is the sight of Christ Himself as He returns in this majestic glory. In fact, just as a footnote, Mark and Luke omit the mention of the sign. Only Matthew mentions that. They simply say that they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And as I noted, it is a personal appearance. And that may seem obvious, but that's very important to note and to reflect on. There are, in fact, other comings of the Lord that are mentioned, particularly in the Old Testament. Comings of salvation, comings of judgment, comings of destruction that weren't bodily appearances, of course, of God. They were comings of the Lord and demonstrations of His majesty, of His holiness, and of His power. We won't read there because of time, but you can look at Isaiah 19.1. Isaiah 40.10. Those are examples of His coming in displays of His power. But here it's not simply a display of His power. It is the coming of God Himself in the Son. When the Son took on flesh, there was a unique display of the glory of God embodied in humanity. Embodied in humanity. It was in the Son that we beheld His glory uniquely. Matter of fact, Paul says in Colossians 2.9, in Him, all the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. So God located and manifests His glory uniquely in the Son. And it is that personal manifestation of the glory of God in the glorified Christ as He returns to earth. And indeed, this was anticipated by the prophets. Let me read to you just a couple of Verses, and you can mark them down. Isaiah 66 anticipates it this way. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. The Lord there, Yahweh, assigning full deity to this one who is returning. It is God Himself. 
For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. This was the anticipation of Malachi and others that there would be a returning of the Lord personally. And here it is that personal return of the Lord in the Son in the incarnate Son, in the glorified Son, in the Messiah. In the Messiah. It is a personal, intensely personal appearing of God, just as He promised. And in fact, just as Jesus promised. If you'll remember, when He left the disciples in Acts chapter 1, He descended into the clouds, and the angel said, just as He has ascended into the clouds, so He will return, so He will descend. It's His personal coming to His people, to His creatures, and to the earth. And as well noted, it is a coming that is attended with power and glory. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Astounding. This is absolutely astounding. What does that mean to say He's coming upon the clouds of heaven? The best way to understand that is He's coming in the fullness of God's glorious presence. The fullness of God's glorious presence. The imagery of the cloud is often connected to the presence of God. If you'll remember when he led them out of Egypt, how did he manifest his presence? It was with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. When he manifests his unique presence in the temple, what did he do? He filled it with smoke as like a cloud. When he appeared on Mount Sinai to Moses, how did he appear in Exodus 19 following. He appeared with a a cloud. There was an ominous presence of God with this dark cloud that was over the top of Mount Sinai as Moses received the law. There was a cloud over the mercy seat. There was a cloud in Solomon's temple. When the Father spoke to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, He spoke from a cloud that His voice came out. It manifests this glorious and majestic presence of God. Most significantly, though, this is anticipated in many ways in Daniel chapter 7. I mentioned it earlier. Let me read. This is in the midst of Daniel describing prophetically the, the kingdoms of the earth, the wicked kingdoms of the earth that would arise some in the fairly near future ultimately looking to the distant kingdom of that little horn, the arrogant one, anticipated by Antiochus Epiphanes IV, but to be manifested in the Antichrist. He says this, though, in the midst of that, And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And here Daniel looks in prophetic insight by the Spirit of God to the Christ receiving that kingdom that here in Matthew 29 he anticipates he will establish when he comes again to do so to the earth. That time when his enemies will be destroyed and none will be able to stand against him. Listen to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. It's a time of majestic display of the glory and of the power of God as He's coming with the clouds from heaven. The clouds from heaven. And consider this for just a moment. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man, he says, who will be appearing in the sky. It is the Son of Man who is coming on the clouds of the sky in the full glory and the majesty of the presence of God. The Son of Man speaks both of His divine nature and His human nature. 
It speaks of him as the glorious God-man and the Messiah. And again, the contrast here needs to be felt and it needs to be seen. He was born as a man, though he is the Son of God. He was born in humble circumstances. He was born to humble parents who had humble means and raised in a humble environment and in a lowly town. He had no natural position in society in his first appearing. And in fact, Isaiah tells us that he was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief, that he was despised and he was forsaken. In a very short time, he is going to leave this scene and he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest disciples. He's going to be abandoned by his other disciples. He's going to be turned on by the nation that should love him. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be wrongly accused. He's going to be shamefully stripped. He's going to be hung on a cross shamefully before the world. He'll be subjected to the greatest possible humiliation, shame, and suffering that wicked men could devise. And here, though, he is the Son of Man returning in glory. And you can imagine the ridicule and the mockery and the, the uh, dis- despicable rejection of their Messiah when Christ uttered this very same truth before the leaders of the Jews when they had taken him to wrongly accuse him. Listen to Matthew chapter 26. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, so this is when they had scurried him away in the night and the Jews came and took him and they held this sort of mock trial and they've got him in this secret place, as it were, and they're surrounding him like wolves and like dogs and they're accusing him and they're attacking him. And he said this in the midst of that scene, or Matthew tells us, that the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? And Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. What a contrast. Broken appearing weak, despised, and yet he says, this is not the end. Next time you see me, it will be in majestic glory. What was the high priest's response? He tore his robes and he said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. And then they begin their mistreatment of him. Again, you can only imagine the scorn and the ridicule that filled the hearts of those Jewish leaders as he stood before them and made such a bold claim. He will return in glory. And there are many who stand before him now who have no problem heaping scorn and mockery and ridicule and shame upon the name of Christ. Indeed, we live in a culture that seems to revel in that. The unbelieving mind cannot see the majestic glory of Christ. That is what marks them as unbelieving. They simply do not see the glory of God in Christ. There is no dread at his return. The dead heart feels no trembling in his presence, no awe at his majesty. But that will not be the case when he returns, when he returns in power and great glory. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's what he anticipates here. That's what he anticipates. Look at what he says. He will return with power. With power. What kind of power will he return with? Well, it's the kind of power that will enable him to destroy all of the mounted might of the rebellion of man at his return that he will destroy immediately. Let me remind you of this event in God's own words. 
I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and rages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. What kind of power does he have? The power to annihilate every enemy at his desire and whim when he chooses to do so. That is the kind of power he will return with. You look on TV sometimes and you see these communist nations seem to love to do this. Parade their war might and the might of their armies before the screen. North Korea just did that. They showed a satellite picture and it was pretty impressive in terms of how how massive this thing was with tanks and with missiles and soldiers and trucks and all of the implements of war. And they do that to show their power. They do that to intimidate other nations. They do that to make a bold statement that we are strong and we are mighty and we will defeat our enemies. And yet here, the amassed might of the entire world will fall before the appearance of Christ when He comes to execute His judgment on earth. It is akin to what was anticipated by Isaiah in Isaiah 40 when he said, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are meaningless. They're less than nothing before the majestic might and power of God. What kind of power is it? It's the power to cast Satan and the false prophet and every demon and every rebellious image bearer into judgment immediately. He says, And the beast was seized in Revelation 19, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. Those who exercised such power and such authority and such deception on earth are here seized, seized before Christ. And they are thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. What kind of power is it? It's the power to destroy his enemies. The power to assign Satan and all who followed him to their judgment. It's a power according to Zechariah chapter 14 and other places to utterly reverse the curse that is on the earth. And to cause deserts to be places of abundance and streams of water. To cause the lion and the lamb to dwell together in peace and harmony. To let a child play next to the hole of a poisonous snake. Why? It's a power to reverse the curse that now is on the earth. It's a power to raise His people, His saints, in resurrected bodies. Listen to Philippians chapter Three, he says this, verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. By what? By the exertion of His power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. It is an unlimited power of God. The unlimited glory of Christ when He returns to earth. And that's what He says. It is with power and it is with great glory. Now glory has the basic idea of a visible manifestation of the qualities of the attributes of something or someone. When we speak of the glory of God in its most basic sense, it means this. It's simply a visible manifestation of His infinite perfections and glory. Whatever is a manifestation of His Perfections is a manifestation of His glory. 
and His power. And here the entire portrait and events are a display of the perfections and the holiness and the majesty of Christ when He returns to establish His kingdom. We're constantly confronted with the response of man before even just the smallest display of the glory of God throughout Scripture. You remember Moses when he was up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 34. Lord, show me your glory. And he says, I'll show you my glory, but you can't see the fullness of my glory. You can't see it in its full measure, as it were, but I'll show you a part. I'll show you the hind part of it, the afterglow, it's sometimes said. And he said he hid him in the cleft of a rock. And then he made his glory to pass by. And there it was primarily the glory of his goodness of, as the covenant making and keeping God to his people. But here it is the unveiled glory of Christ on the world to unleash judgment. Paul said that God dwells in unapproachable light. And indeed for here particularly the wicked of the earth it is a light that will be blinding. And it will be frightful to them. It's this appearance of glory that will end the period of darkness of the darkened sun and the darkened moon and the fallen stars from the sky. It is a foretaste of that glory that will light all of the infinite new heavens and new earth in that time to come. The ultimate end game of God's plan of redemption. The new heavens and the new earth. And His glory alone will shine there. Just listen to this wonderful picture. He says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, I saw no temple in it. Here is the new heavens and the new earth, not the millennial kingdom. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and the Lamb is its lamp. The majestic glory of God. The majestic glory of God. And for many, however, this time will actually be a time of rejoicing. A time of gratitude. A time of thankfulness for His appearing. For those who had turned to the Lord for salvation. To those who had responded to the gospel that was preached to the ends of the earth. That was made known throughout the whole world. It will be a time of rejoicing because they who had been living in fear under the persecution of the Antichrist, who had been suffering under this wicked system, who had been separated from families and had many of their friends and family killed, for them the return of Christ will be an end of their languishing under the despotic rule of the man of lawlessness. And the return of Christ will bring an end to it all and there will be overwhelming joy. But for most of the earth, that's not the case. Go back up in verse 30 to the phrase we skipped over earlier. What it will be the response of the earth? This is the second characteristic of His coming. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. All of the tribes of the earth will mourn. For some, the appearance of Christ will be a time of rejoicing. For most, the appearance of Christ will be a time of mourning. Time of mourning. The response of the world and of the nation of Israel at his first coming was rejection. The response at his second will be mourning. The idea is to cut, to beat, as in the beating of the breast, out of lament or sorrow, contrition, grief. Now the question here is this. Is the mourning of repentance or is it a mourning of fear? Is it a morning of repentance or is it a morning of morning of sorrow? Sorrow is what is coming upon them. Well, there's a sense in which it's both. For the unbelieving world, it will be indeed a time of great sorrow and regret. It will be a time where all the tribes of the earth will indeed fear, lament what's coming upon them. They will have a glimpse of the judgment that they are about to have to endure from the hand of the one they have made their enemy. Listen to Paul's words describing this event in 2 Thessalonians 1. Just listen as I read it. 
Beginning in verse 7, he says this. Well, in verse 6, he says, It's only just for God to repay, repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 7, And to give relief to you who are afflicted to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. When He comes in judgment to the unbelieving, to the haters of Christ, it will be mourning. It will be fear. It will be sorrow. It will be regret. It will be trembling. For all those who are not destroyed up to that point and have remained steadfast in their rebellion. However, there's also a special reference here to the morning of repentance. The morning that will accompany a regenerate Israel who sees their rejected Messiah now coming in glory and in power. Listen to Zechariah. Again, write these down. We're jumping around a lot, so don't... Turn there, but listen to Zechariah. Looking forward to this day, he says in verse 9, chapter 12, In that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's the amassed army against Christ before his return. He says in verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. And they go on. And all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. This is a a morning of repentance. This is a morning of sorrow. This is the kind of morning that the nation of Israel or the time when they will repeat back the words of Isaiah 53 and acknowledge that the one who came who was a man of sorrows and rejected by the nation is indeed the one who stood in their place. He was their Messiah whom God has sent. He is the one who in resurrected glory has now returned. They will recognize that. And yet it will be a recognition that in that moment comes with deep shame and sorrow and regret for all that they had done to their Messiah as a nation. In fact, that's powerfully portrayed in John chapter 19, verse 37, when these words are repeated. Listen. He says this, for these things came about to fulfill the scriptures. This is during the, the, the crucifixion of Christ. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The difference between John 19.37, where the Jewish nation is looking on him whom they have pierced, and that which will happen when he returns, is that in John 19.37, there's no mourning. There's no mourning. That's how it is right now. There's no mourning as they would hear of their crucified Messiah. But that will change when he returns. There will be mourning. There will be sorrow. And it will be a final fulfillment of God's promise to them where all Israel will be saved. Romans 11 verse 26. So it will be a time of mourning. It will be a time of judgment. It will be time also of salvation. Look at verse 31. And we'll have to go through this quickly. Verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And so the final word of Christ's return, however, is not the devastation of judgment, but is the establishment of his salvation. It is the establishment of his kingdom in righteousness. That's the final word here by Christ himself. 
It's an ultimate fulfillment of God's word to his people anticipated long before or before, just before they entered into the land of Canaan. It's an ultimate fulfillment of these words. Just listen in Deuteronomy 30. He says, And and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you are outcast or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Now that happened in anticipation throughout the history of Israel. But there is that final day, that final day when God returns, when Christ returns in fulfillment of his promises where he will indeed make that true. And here it is by the work of his angels who he sends out to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky of the other. It simply means out of the whole earth. From everywhere on the planet that his people exist, he will gather them. Where his elect exist, he will bring them to himself. It is a time that will be signaled by, he says, a great trumpet. Again, the trumpet is used in many ways throughout scripture. It was A sound of a trumpet at Mount Sinai. The sound of a trumpet often called his people to war. Told them to stop war and to pull back from the battle. It warned them of coming war. It declared Israel's king and so forth. But here it is a call that will accompany Jesus sending out to gather his elect. In Isaiah 27.13 it's a call to come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. It's a call to, of salvation. In Zechariah 9.14, it is a call to the eschatological, that end time appearing of the Lord. And here he's going to gather his elect, who are both the dead and the alive when he comes. Primarily the alive, because these are those who are on the earth and alive at his coming. And he will gather them together to enter into his kingdom. It's the final act of redemption before the establishment of his kingdom on earth. And then will come the promise of the prophets that we read earlier. What will happen after he gathers them together? Well, according to Jeremiah 33, 15, we read it earlier. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. It is what we read in Isaiah 61. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the nations. It's his kingdom. It's his kingdom. It's when he returns. Everything's settled at that moment. His glory fills the earth and the nations bring their glory before him and he reigns in righteousness and righteousness indeed reigns over all of the earth. Beloved, do you look forward to that day? Are you confident that day is coming? Do you live your life in light of the fact that Christ will establish his kingdom on earth and this is not our home, our citizenship is not here ultimately it is with Christ in his kingdom and in his presence there is a warning here and there is an encouragement the warning here is not of course only to those who are alive at that time it's to any in this room and any who hear the gospel and reject it that there is a day of accounting there is a day where every sin will be made known and there is an accounting for your life You cannot hide from the Lord. You cannot drown it out in any of your pursuits. You cannot hide your iniquity from the Lord. It will be brought to an account. Maybe not in this life. Maybe you'll die full of the things of this world. And yet you will die into everlasting judgment. And there will be a day of reckoning. And so the warning is to know whether you stand on the Lord's side or whether you stand against him, whether you belong to the Lord or whether you don't. And there is a word of encouragement to those who know him that our God reigns. We sing, right? Our God reigns and he will establish his kingdom on earth and we are a people of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we should live like it. Then the peace that we read about 
and sing about today will come and what a glorious day it will be. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that takes us and lifts us up out of our day-to-day, out of the things that we can see only with our eyes and can understand only with our feeble minds. And it lifts us into those great and glorious truths of the past of what you promised and of what you've accomplished for us in the Son and to the future of all that you will do for us in that great day when you establish your kingdom on earth and ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. And it reminds us you are the same God with us now, enabling us to live and step with that kingdom in the righteousness of your own nature to glorify your great name and your Son. Help us to find much encouragement, perspective in life of our own issues and of the culture that we live in. Embolden us to live more boldly for the kingdom and in the gospel of the kingdom being witnesses to Christ. And I do pray for any here that do not yet know you, that you would convict them of their terrible condition and that you would lead them to the foot of the cross and that they would bow in humble adoration and repentance and trust in the crucified and the risen Lord who receives every repentant sinner who comes and bows the knee of the heart before him. We thank you again for your word and for your spirit, for gathering us here today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.